are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Java Man Archery, building traditional bows since 1994. Java Man offers 12 models of hybrid longbows and recurves featuring accuracy-enhancing forward handles as well as Asiatic-inspired models. Greg Coffey's forte is short hunting bows that pull unusually smoothly, even with longer draw lengths. Greg's custom bows can be ordered in a variety of configurations, from plain to fancy, including hand-carved functional art in the riser. He offers all of his models in one-piece or two-piece takedowns using the bow bolt system. Now, Greg's newest model developed in May of 2018, the Impala Longbow, is available in lengths of 64 to 70 inches. And the Impala meets IFAA regulations for serious competitors on the target course. Now, I got to meet Greg in person earlier this year and spent a good bit of time talking with him. He's knowledgeable, easy to talk to, and just seems to be an all-around great guy. If you're thinking about a new bow, be sure to consider Java Man Archery and give Greg a call. And be sure to tell him you heard about Java Man Archery on this podcast. You can learn more about Greg's bows, place an order, or obtain contact information on his website at www.javamanarchery.com. Now on to the show. Well, welcome everyone to the podcast. How's it going, Nick? It's going pretty good, Steve. Getting ready for hunting season. What about you? Uh, definitely, definitely getting ready for hunting season. And actually, uh, I do want us to chat about that for, for just a few minutes, but, uh, obviously there was a little bit of a, a different start to the podcast. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. Uh, the, we did introduce our, our first sponsor in Greg Coffee and Java Man Archery at the start of this episode. Um, and I just want to talk to the listeners about that a little bit, um, I know you and I talked about this, and I really thought long and hard about uh, taking on sponsors for the podcast at all. But, you know, in the end, this this all just costs money. Um, you know, Jason Sam Koviak pointed that out on a on an episode a long time ago and on his podcast, and it just really got me to thinking about it. But, you know, between the, the hosting space for the, the recordings and the, the website and and the uh, even the equipment and so forth that, that – you know, you have to, you have to buy and maintain and, and replace. Um, it's really comes down to being able to, to recoup some of those, some of those costs. Um, and then also you and I have kind of talked about, we want to do more events like, like Compton's and, you know, just, just having some, some money in reserve to, to do some of those trips. And, and, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we can completely replace all those costs maybe, but it, you know, every little bit helps. Um, so, you know, I decided that really the way I wanted to go about doing this was uh, allowing uh, individuals or, or companies to sponsor uh, an episode. Uh, that kind of keeps uh, me and us as being able to be unbiased and independent, and we can still talk about, uh, you know, whatever topics or subjects we want to. We can have anybody on the podcast that we want if it's a, a, a somebody has a, a competing product so be it we just we won't have a we, we won't mix up the sponsors so that we've got a you know a sponsor talking about um uh, one brand of of camouflage clothing and then having another person on the same podcast talking about their product so be a little bit of of coordinating on my end but but ultimately it it allows us to recoup some of that money and and at the same time still stay independent so 
I did just kind of want to spend just a few minutes talking about that so so that everybody knows. So if anybody uh, listening to this is is interested in sponsoring an episode, uh, please feel free to, to reach out and contact me through uh, the email at podcast at traditionaloutdoors.com. And uh, I've got a lot of different options that we can talk about, uh, both from the podcast as well as on our our website and uh we'll just take it from there so i that's really all i wanted to say but i did i did feel like i need to kind of uh cover that and explain it so back to your question and uh you know i spent a couple of weeks ago hanging some stands and getting ready i'm i'm hoping i had a water heater fail on me this morning so i've got to try to get that repaired today but hoping to to go out and get some more uh stands uh in place tomorrow and and do some do some maintenance down on uh uh, some of the properties that you'll be hunting with me when you come here uh, this November. But uh, you and I talked about wanting to do a, a just an episode with another episode with just you and I. And, and one of the ideas that came to mind was uh, using an episode to talk about, you know, how we independently, individually go about looking at a piece of property and how we're preparing for the season. So, um Really, it's I'm gonna pick out a a, a track of land um, that I've never hunted before, and I think you're gonna pick out a track of land that that you you're familiar with, but you've never hunted before, right? Yep, that's right. Um, there's actually a track out in it's kind of in the same area. I, I hunt out in the um, in the Cannonsburg area um, over here in uh, in Rockford, um, and it's a couple little little pieces of smaller smaller tracks of public land. Um, they're landlocked. They're surrounded by private land um, and properties, uh, but they're but they're good little tracks. And uh, I've always wanted to hunt this Heiser Lake property. Um, it looks like it's got some really nice terrain in it. I've stumped there a little bit, uh, but I've never actually hunted it, not seriously anyway. And um, the places I'm looking at right now, after after watching Jason's DVDs, uh, Jason Sam Koviak, Koviak um and talking to you and looking at Cal Topo, and I think I got a pretty good idea of some uh, of some areas I want to check out. And I've been out there one time with the kids, but I actually planned on getting out there again today and looking at it a little bit more, and will continue to do so up until hunting season. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's looking pretty good. It's looking pretty promising. And now I just got to get out there and 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 get some more notes and and spend a little more time thinking about where I put a stand up and and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, like I said, I've never really hunted it much. Uh, and, um, I'm hoping that everything I've learned this thus far in the last year will, will pay off for me. What about you, Steve? Well, and that's, that's part of my challenge is I, I, I scout pretty much year round, even if it's just looking at, at topos and, and, and marking points of interest and that kind of thing. So I've really got to figure out, you know, where I'm going to, what's, what section I'm going to pick. Cause I've got, you know, a couple of WMAs that I hunt a lot. And I think if, uh, I think I can find some areas on those, one of those WMAs that, uh, I've probably looked at a little bit in the past from a, from a, a topo perspective, but I never actually put boots on the ground. Um, but I think the idea of what we're, what we're hoping to do is pick that track of land and then kind of document our, our pre-scouting, our boots on the ground scouting, um, capture any any notes that we took things that we we took into consideration from everything from terrain to uh to cover to 
weather conditions such as wind, those kind of things, the time of the year we want to hunt, how we'll approach the property, all of that, or that the, the stand, I should say. Um, be as detailed as we can because that's going to be the challenge, right? We don't have a, we don't have mm-hmm. a, a visual media here, so we're going to have to be as detailed uh, as we can be um, verbally. And then over the course of the, the season, we'll try to get that episode out maybe by the end of August because I know a lot of, a lot of places their seasons actually start in early September. Um, and then, you know, sometime either later in the season, towards the end of the season, or maybe, you know, early winter, we'll actually sit down and have another episode where we uh, go back and, and talk about what we, what we actually accomplished, if anything, you know, on that track and go through our notes, how many times we hunted it, what we, what we managed to see, what we would have done differently, maybe some surprises that we, we encountered, we didn't anticipate. I think it'll be very um, useful as well as entertaining to see uh, how it all, how it all plays out. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, this is, this is really different for me. Um, I'm not just walking out in the woods. So yeah, this is going to be great. All right. Well, I will try to get a, a spot nailed down. I know you already have one, and uh, we'll start uh, we'll start sharing some notes or something in Google Drive or something, so we can start prepping for that for that episode. But this week uh, we've got a we've got a good one this week. We yeah we do. Um, I've uh, I've been following I've been following this particular individual for some time, and. Um, enjoying his writing and DVDs and and we've got uh we've got Mike Mitten this week folks and uh it's uh it's a good one it it really is it was a it was a great conversation uh I know I picked up uh Mike's new DVD uh Chasing Solitude while I was up in um Michigan at the Compton's Rendezvous and watched it pretty much as soon as I got back home and I think I've watched it about three times since then uh, I highly recommend it for anyone, and that's really the focus of our conversation with Mike is around uh, the, the DVD Chasing Solitude and his experiences, um, uh, mostly his experiences hunting in, a, in an Alaska um, uh, solo in the wilderness. So, um, again, Mike Mitten, uh, be sure to check out his, his website, herdbullproductions.com. Um, and you can pick up a copy of his book, One with the Wilderness, there as well as the DVD, Chasing Solitude. But without giving too much away, um, I say we jump right in and uh, get started with Mike. The last thing I really want to mention is to please ask everyone, if you haven't already, uh, head out and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. So let's jump into Mike. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Mr. Mike Mitten. How are you, buddy? I'm doing fine up here in northern Illinois. It's been a pretty warm uh, holiday week, but uh, things are calm right now and cool sitting in front of this fan. <laughs> how's things How's things been going for you since Compton's? Uh, been pretty good. I was out to Iowa. I drew an Iowa tag, so I was out there over the 4th trying to Talked with a friend of mine, Brian Wessel. Uh, he was a bowyer out there, and, and uh, Barry and Gene Wenzel. I was going to stop by and see them, but everybody was busy, so I went out to southeast Iowa and, and hung six stands on my own out there and scouted a new property and, and hung some stands in the heat, but uh, drank maybe a case of water and three <laughs> jugs of Gatorade, but got her done. <laughs> I was doing the same thing last weekend, and it was it was just miserable, miserable yeah. hot. Now you got uh, 
you got ETAR coming up in just a couple of weeks, and you'll be there with uh, with Barry yeah, again, right? Yeah, that's right. Barry's going to be a guest speaker there. So, you know, we try to tag team. You know, if he's the guest speaker, he gets a free table, and then I kind of sit along with him with the Brothers of the Bow. But uh, I'm kind of doing my own thing now. So if I give a talk, then, then he comes along with me. So that, that's kind of what happened at Compton's. Barry was there on on uh, sitting at my uh, herd bull productions table, and it's all good. We're kind of all all together, so brothers of the bow and herd bull productions. So we just try to you know get our books and DVDs out. So, but it's tough to do it on your own, uh, you know, without getting the tables, you know, uh, complimentary if we give a speech or something. So if you give a seminar, sure. they usually give us a table. Yeah, and I I know I I picked up a copy of of your book and of. Uh, uh, chasing solitude um at uh at compton's this year and I, i'll be honest mike I've, I've really enjoyed it i know i know nick's watched it as well it, it's just phenomenal and that's really huh? I, I guess the the bulk of what we'll want to sit here and talk to you about for the All next right. hour or so but you mentioned iowa um any any other any other big hunts planned for this fall other than Iowa? Well, yeah i uh, i normally hunt in illinois that's where i live in northern illinois so I used to hunt a little bit in Wisconsin, but uh, I have a property with my brother in northern Illinois. So I put in for Iowa. It takes about four or five years to draw the you know the right units that I want. So it took me about that long. And so I, I drew that tag. So I'll be in Iowa. And then, of course, my, my regular land and hunting property in, in northern Illinois. And then I'm also going back to Alaska again. Uh, I usually go alone, but uh, this time I'm going with a with a partner this year, uh, Brian Wessel from Tall Tines Traditional Archery makes recurve bows out of southeast Iowa. So I'm going with Brian. So, you know, the family and stuff gets a little nervous, me going alone, but uh, I guess they never get used to it over 25 years of going on solo hunts. But <laughs> anyway, this year I'll, this year I'll have, a, have a partner for moose. So looking forward to that in September. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I bet, and you know I I know you like to go out. I know you like to go out west, and and I wanted to ask you what what drew you to hunting out west when you were a boy in northern Wisconsin. Like, what made you want to go want to go out there and hunt those places? And what places in particular did you originally want to hunt? Like your dream. Uh, when I was uh, a kid, we started hunting in northern Wisconsin, and then I I, I lived in Illinois, so it was a non-resident tag, but my dad had land up there. So we had uh, up around 80-something acres and surrounded by 400 square miles of Chiguamigan National Forest in uh, the central Chiguamigan National Forest in north-central Wisconsin. So that's about 20 miles by 20 miles square of, of public land that you could hunt on. And so that's where I sort of cut my bow hunting teeth uh, as in high school and, and, uh, and later a young adult. But I always dreamed about the West. We hear about... Uh, uh, folks out there hunting elk and, and guys in the in the bow clubs in southeast Wisconsin. I would talk with them, and and they'd always talk about the great adventures they'd have out in the Black Hills hunting mule deer, or, or some of them would go to Montana. And uh, it's always something that was in the back of my mind to go do. But I always also wanted to, for whatever reason, I always liked hunting moose or the thought of hunting moose, or someday I would ever get a chance to hunt moose. But uh, so actually, I hunted. Uh, so then uh, we, we we did hunt a lot in Canada. You could go across the border and hunt black bears on your own in, in a traditional only areas, archery and muzzleloaders. So, you know, I got used to getting out, uh, you know, 
just the small groups of people and learn woodsmanship. But uh, actually, physically going out west, I had planned a trip to go with somebody, and uh, and they backed out. You know, they couldn't go. So you know about hunting; it's all about the anticipation and the planning. A lot of people like that sometimes more than a hunt. It certainly lasts longer. <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> and you're thinking about the hunt. You know, for six months out of the year, and then eventually you get to go, and it might only be a week or two or something like that. But that's what had happened. Uh, uh, a guy had uh, uh, backed out, and uh, so I had already had enough woodsmanship uh, skills built up by that time that uh, that I went out uh, on my own to Colorado. But I always dreamed about Montana or any of those states where they have multiple species than than what we have here in Illinois. As far as big game, we got you know we got one uh, one thing you know white-tailed deer. But uh, yeah, I dreamed about elk. I, you know, I always wanted to hunt elk, and that was one of my first. Uh, uh, solo hunts actually it was in Colorado. Oh, gotcha. What what drew you to moose? What was it about moose that you really liked? I don't know. They're just you know just big you know giant antlers and just you know where they lived. You know, whenever you think of moose, for me it was always uh, Alaska. So we'd always hear about guys going up caribou hunting or moose hunting. So and I actually had hunted moose in uh, 1988 with a group of there were four of us. So three friends and myself went on a combination caribou and, and moose hunt. So um, that was after multiple years of hunting black bear and then, you know, hunting whitetails here in Illinois. Um, and just whitetail hunting itself is kind of a, a uh, as far as getting mature bucks, is kind of a solo, uh, solitary thing. You know, you against the big buck type of thing. Because some guys like the camaraderie, but big bucks don't like a lot of people in the woods. So <laughs> we learned to kind of hunt on our own. And so so when I got a chance to go and hunt moose and caribou for the first time, you know, we all went. You know, it was just probably one of the probably one of my, the greatest uh, trips that I was on was probably the first time I went to Alaska because everything was new. You know, I never flew on an airplane before. Uh, you know, we got on a big jet, come out of O'Hare and, and shuttled to Seattle and then another plane, another jet, slightly smaller into Anchorage and then a, another plane, a 10 seater prop plane down to Seldotna and then another plane <laughs> to Haviland Beaver. Each time it kept getting smaller and smaller before we were dropped off on floats. And it was in the late 80s, so the caribou populations were good. The Machatna herd was good. A lot of people were, were, were hunting up there at that time. And it's just for us, it was. A, kind of a glorification of our our bear hunting trips because we would go into Canada and go 20 miles with boat uh, as far as we could go and then set up baits. You had two weeks to to bait, uh, bring in your bait and so forth, bring draw in a bear, you know, long enough and then be able to shoot it with a archery equipment and so and then fish and camp, you know, all all at once for two weeks. We would go just about every May. So, you know, that's where I learned a lot of the woodsmanship skills and, and actually being on that trip with those four guys. I shot a caribou and, a, and actually I killed my first moose then. So when, when you say going out west, you know, that was, you know, in the next draw, it doesn't cost as much. You know, I still, you know, the family was getting bigger. Going out west, you can leave, drive from Illinois and go out to the trailhead and, and walk in and you don't have to rely on the plains and you don't need to rely on anybody really. You could kind of do it on your own and. That was one of my, my first uh, elk hunts. Actually, I used an outfitter to, to take me in near his base camp and drop me off at a spike camp. And then uh, I actually spiked out from there. But uh, uh, moose, I don't know. It's just 
the romance of where the moose live probably <laughs> initially. <laughs> well, I'll be I'll be honest, Mike. I uh, 2016 made my first trip out west. Uh, me and a good friend went out there for for antelope, and we spent a couple of days just driving through the the bighorns doing a little trout fishing, and we actually spotted a couple of moose, and one of them uh was was on the side of a, a forest service road out in the middle of nowhere and, you know parked the vehicle got out with a camera and and got really close to to him to to take some photos and i don't care how many times you see one of those things on tv or see them in a, a hunting video that animal is just monstrous and majestic all at the same yeah. time i mean it yeah. just it all of a sudden hit me just how big that animal was Yes, you have, out, out west should be the Cyrus moose, and then you, you put was, that with, yes. a, with an Alaskan Yukon. You're adding in about another, you know, four or five hundred pounds to that animal. Oh man! <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that, they're just a whole another big thing. But people, yeah, the gracefulness and the beauty. People think like you see, they say majestic. They use that word a lot with elk because they're vocal and so forth, and you know they're trying to drive a harem and everything. But moose, you know, they're majestic as well, and and they're. They're quite vocal, too. People don't realize how vocal they are. And, you know, they're more, I don't know. As I started hunting out west and going again, and then he's trying to put in for points for different units and things like that. Well, somebody, if you want to go with somebody, well, they got to be on the same plane as you. They got to put in the same number of years of points as you do. So right. it sort of started going on my own and then not having to rely on other people and, and we hunted i broke it up we hunted antelope in wyoming with a group of guys and so i mean it wasn't just strictly solo hunting you know right off but uh after maybe 90 96 or so then i started going alone in south dakota and in uh, in uh, montana and so forth but but always a draw back to alaska for the moose <laughs> Well, and, and let so let's get into that. Let's let's dive into uh, chasing solitude. So, what you, you mentioned eighty three was your first. I think that's what you said was your first trip into into Alaska. But you know, what year was your your first solo trip into Alaska? Was was that? I know in the video it starts out. I think at two thousand fourteen. But was yeah, that your yeah. first solo trip, or did you actually go in before that? No, well, the the first uh, the trip that we went with the four guys was in 1988, and then uh, I, I, then and then in uh, and then in '94 I went solo uh, uh, elk hunting, and then uh, I shot a bull down in a deep hole. That, that's another story. But I shot a, a elk <laughs> down in a big hole and had to pack him out up to the rim, and, and the outfitter was you know that was in the area. He was really you know impressed because you know. I, I'm not his client necessarily. I was just, he was just my transportation. And then I, I moved from where that camp was and got that elk out. But anyway, that experience of packing out that elk and being able to do it on your own, that gives you the confidence to say, you know what, I want to go moose hunting this year. So uh, that was in 1995. So the very next year, 1995, 94, 95, I was planning on going uh, a, a moose hunt with a friend down near uh cordova area and uh, there he, he had a friend that was going to um take us in with airboats you go all across the swamp and get up into the mountains so you need that, that travel distance anything about moose is you want to get away from any roads or where the people are and this particular opportunity was going to be with airboats so uh, anyway we flew from anchorage got down to to cordova and then there was another one more leg the plane was going to take us to where this guy 
was going to have these uh, this boat uh, to get us back into the areas where the moose were. And I found out that uh, during that evening that, hey, the uh, the one he had three airboats, two of them were broke, and now he only had one. And and one guy was there with his buddy was in camp, and uh, so it looked like man, I'm not, there's not going to be any time for me and my friend, you know, to go. So I says I I can't, you know, um, I can't risk you know my vacation on on that such uh, you know uh, gamble. So I I had a so I was going to go moose hunting for two weeks and then I was going to go uh, caribou hunting. So I booked a caribou hunt back to where the original place was, where where I hunted in 1988. So I already knew that place and I already had a pilot lined up. So once I found out that the moose trip was going to be you know, going to crash and burn, I got on the on the phone with the pilot and said, Hey, instead of taking me caribou hunting, I know where I want to go. I want to go right back where I was, where I killed my first bull in 1988. I told him where the lake was and thought on the map, can you get me in there? He said, sure, get, get back up here tomorrow by noon and I'll, uh, I'll take you in. So we flew to Cordova. My friend went on with his buddies and went with the airboat thing or whatever. I turned around and got scared and turned around and, and, uh, and flew back to Anchorage. And then uh, from Anchorage, I, uh, I hitched a ride all the way up to uh, to Wasilla, but my pilot was in w- uh, Willow, Alaska, which is another I don't know how many miles, but it's further up the highway from Wasilla to Willow. That's where I needed to get by noon, so I I got staged up there overnight. And then the first thing in the morning, I f- I got uh, a taxi cab to take me <laughs> to to Willow. So I show up at the uh, at the outfitter who's going to fly me in. Uh, out of a cab and throw my stuff out and off we go and he was making a, a fuel run and, and I got in early so my first solo moose moose hunt was was three weeks long in 1995 and I was back to the same spot where I killed my first moose so I had familiarity with it they dropped me in on a lake and I knew that I had to pack my camp uh, away from that the first lake where he dropped me and get up on this big hill the lookout I had to get up on the lookout that's the thing about moose you want to get elevated so I instead of so I left half of my provisions there, you know, buried some of them, half of my food and whatnot, and some of my you know, survival stuff like tarps and things that I would need if I could if I had to get back to the lake, I would still have you know a shelter there. So I left the tarp, and I loaded what I could about 85, 90 pounds on my back and climbed up to the lookout and put my camp there. And uh, you know the first day you can't uh, you can't hunt, but I was glassing from the lookout and I was seeing moose everywhere. And, so basically that was my uh my first solo hunt was three weeks uh i saw 40 40 bull moose uh during that time and uh ended up uh well i can continue with the story ended up at the end it was you know very frustrating at the end i had three days left out of that three weeks and found the right bull and uh, he was out there at about two and a half miles from that lookout, but he's wow. closer towards he was closer towards the, the the river where I could come up the river and get back to the original lake. And I saw him bedded down, and I I, I marked a big patch of red, which is pucker brush or, or blueberry bushes that are red. And I go, oh, that's a good spot. I can tell that. But once you get out there, all the red sort of goes blends, and you lose your you lose your <laughs> right. vantage point and. I stepped, I was walking, looking for that moose, and was, this is a real, real windy day. A lot of times you'll know in Alaska, real heavy wind. So a real heavy wind out of the north, 
northeast and uh, I stepped out behind this uh, spruce tree and there was the bull bedded down, still bedded down. I, I stepped out and my eyes saw him out of the peripheral and I stepped back and he was 25 yards away. And then uh, I said, oh, there's that bull. So uh, I just uh, got down, got my composure together, look at how he was sitting quartering. And then I proceeded to sneak up to him and, you know, you're, you're, you're a bull hunter, so you always want to get as close as you can. So I sure. basically crawled up to that bedded bull about 10 yards, and <laughs> about 12 yards, about 12 yards. Then uh, in the back of your mind, you're, I'm a little nervous because there's other stories about friends that were with me on the other hunt that got uh, gored by a moose and got thrashed around pretty good. So you're always a little, you know, the fear is kind of in you when you're that close a little bit. And uh, anyway, he's bedded down and uh, basically uh, you imagine a dog that lays there with what's upright part of its body or part of its ribs bend out, bend, bend, you know, sideways. And then it comes up. Well, you're losing a lot of that lower part of the lungs and the heart are basically down, you know, below the, the sphagnum moss. So to actually get a real low heart shot on an animal like that, you'd have to, I would have to, I would have to shoot basically through the moss. And you don't think about these things because the animal is still so big and tall. Anyway, sure. I shot and I, and I got into his lungs. It was a, a high lung hit because then when he stood up, he took the arrow and he, and he stood up. He's, you know, he's 12 yards away. Now he's basically looking down, basically looking down at me as I'm, you know, I'm on my knees. And then he just turns and walks off, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you're excited, you know, you're all worked up, you know. Sure. And uh, he just went right, right straight to this river that was there. And uh, so I sat there for an hour and. I don't know. I didn't know the river was there, but I started tracking blood and he got across the river on me. So some of the frustration that I feel and what I write about in, in some of the in some of the chapters in my book, um, you know, I don't end up with the animal. And that's the case where it's, you know, it's it's just a tough thing. You know, when he he crossed that river and there was no way for me uh, as a human to get across that river without a, without a raft. Because the water was just too, too swift. You know, it's five, six foot and it's about uh, 50 yards across. And, you know, I went downstream, you know, two miles looking for to see if he, you know, died halfway across or whatever. And, you know, I couldn't find that bull. Now I'm stuck, you know, with got to get back. My camp's, you know, my shelter is up on top of that knob. I have to walk back uphill and get back up into my camp up on that top. So, I mean, those are some of the loneliest, uh, the loneliest times <laughs> I've had in hunting and, you know, the sort of frustrated times. It was basically the last day where I still had three days to pack, you know, before the pilot would come and get me. And, you know, I don't tell people a lot about that story because it's something like, you know, you want to you want to keep that to yourself type of thing. But I mean, it's part of it's part of my experiences. It's part of, you know, I, I survived that type of stuff. That's that's that type of heartbreak. And you lived on to, you know, hunt again. It happens to people. You, you, know, you did everything right other than, hey. I'm not going to really shoot a big animal like that in his bed anymore. You know, you'd let him, let him stand up, you know, however, wait however long for him to stand up. And then you can get, you know, a good shot at, you know, where the, the heart lung, the lower quadrant in a moose. You want to shoot the lower quadrant. And I got his lungs, but it was just high. So then, you know, he would, it was more to wound, but, you know. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. He had enough, he had enough go power to, to go 50, uh, you know, yeah. to walk 50 yards and cross the river. And I mean, how can you not tell that story? Everything leading up to it, I mean, 10 yards away from a moose that's towering over yeah. top of you while you're yeah. on it. I mean, yeah. how many people have experienced that, you know? And I called, I called that moose in the day before and uh, I, he just got around me on the wind. I was 60 yards from him, the same bull the day before. And he was just, like, I think I called him, like, old golden boy. Because some of them have real dark guard hairs and some of them have blonde. And this one had that 
combination of copper on top. And then they have like a straight line of dark where the belly is all dark. And he was classic of one of those types of bulls with, you know, many, many points on his palms. He was just a great, a great bull. So leading up to that, Mike, how did you, how would you get, I mean, in those early days, I know you have a lot of experience solo hunting now and everything, but mm-hmm. what, what did you do to get, what did you do to prepare for a hunt like that solo out in Alaska? Like what, what, what kind of steps did you have to go through to get to that point for, you know, especially for somebody like me who has never even fathomed going out there? Um, basically the, the physical shape you need to be in because, you know, even if you're with somebody, you know, going anywhere, you want to be in pretty good shape. You know, if you're packing out an elk with two people, you know, or a moose with a couple of people. But to have, to be able to think, that, boy, can you really do this on your own? The mental side is really, you know, you need to have the, the physical stuff, you know, together. And that's whatever kind of training you're going to do. Uh, I'm not into the real extreme stuff. Back then, I would just, you know, lift and and, you know, mow the grass without, you know, the kids would laugh at me when I was mad at me, I guess, because I would never get a riding lawnmower. I got an acre and a half and I'd push it with a push mower. And then the kids got bigger. Well, now it's their turn to push it and they're all mad, you know, because, you know, the neighbors got a riding lawnmower and I would say, well, yeah, but look at how, you know, look at how, uh, obesity is, you know, what came first, you know, obesity or the, or the riding lawnmower, which came first, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, you go and do whatever you need to do to get in shape, you know, uh, yeah, squats and stuff like that, work on your legs if you can, but physical shape, you know, comes in and, but the mental side is more, uh, is what people will fall against, you know, but I had already experienced, you know, hunting alone again out, out, uh, out West and then, you know, a lot of whitetail stuff. We were, you know, we'd hunt, you know, a week at a time, you know, by yourself and stuff, just the natural, side of things so i mean that that part uh, wasn't so bad but uh um where to go and all that or uh, that's a tough thing to, to you know to decide in alaska there's so much so many questions and, and things change so much like from 1988 i didn't go again till 95 when that trip i just uh, described to you then i didn't go again moose hunting again till 2002 or no 2001 when 9-11 um I, I hunted then during that uh I was up there in Alaska hunting moose when uh when the twin towers went down and you know all the flights went down. It's funny, uh, everybody everybody remembers no, where they where were, they were on that day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we were sort of stranded up there. <laughs> and I passed up uh seventeen bulls, I guess, on that trip and it was the another another guy that had dropped me in an outfitter, but I was on my own. Like he would guide people, but I, I hunted out from his base camp out on my own. And, you know, I'm I treat it like I do white tails. You know, you want a mature animal, you're going to have to wait for one. You know, if you only got one tag, even though you have a bow and arrow, you still be as selective. I don't like to use so much the word trophy hunting because it has somewhat negative connotation nowadays. But a selective sure. hunter, I'm going to pick and choose what, you know, what I'm going to shoot. But by definition, it's going to be a pretty mature animal because the non-residents have to have a 50-inch uh, in some units, a 50-inch wide uh, outside spread of the antlers or or three brow points, or some even have four brow points. But uh, anyway, I passed up 17 bulls with the hopes of uh, with the hopes of coming back the following year, you know, and, and got them all on film. And a lot of that footage you, you would see in, in a film we made uh, back in, in 2005 with Gene and Barry Wenzel and my two brothers called Primal Dreams. So a lot of that moose footage was in that, in that film. And then the next year, I was hoping to go back, and uh, they closed that unit to non-residents. 
So now I was stuck again, finding a new place like many, like other, many other people. Where do you go? But, you know, as you go, you start to build contacts and, and learn. And I uh, found another guy, another pilot, another spot. And I ended up in the Wrangles. And uh, well, that was a two-week drop in the Wrangles in 2002 for Moose. And uh, that one was uh, a pretty uh, a tough hunt. I ended up getting dropped. And uh, I looked uh, upriver up as far as I could go. Then worked my way downriver for two every two to three days. I'd move downriver uh, looking for moose because people think they're around every bush or every bend in the river or every rock. There's got to be a lot of moose. You know, after all, you're in Alaska. You know, the game, the gate, the uh, state of rich game and game everywhere, but it's vastly game void. And so I ended up moving my camp every couple of days downriver. I ended up six miles from where the guy dropped me off. But I remember him flying me in and said, if I get to that uh, that bend right there, there's a little landing strip right there. And I, I kept a mental note of that because I knew from past experiences and what I had done on these other trips and how far I had killed moose from where they had dropped me that I always wanted a two-location drop spot or, or at least another pickup spot because that will expand your range. And that's what happened. Once I had moved down river, I did actually find that other landing strip and then like I, I get to start over. You're on Ghoul. You know, I had my camp with me, and I started hunting out from there. Unfortunately, I, I hunted out three miles from the new spot and then ended up uh, calling a, a couple bulls in one evening. And then I have a, a what I do is I, I go back to the same spot where I was the evening before, the first thing in the morning, and start calling again from that same spot. So something about moose. You know, you're trying to trigger that rut craze. And a lot of times they, it takes them a while and they come and they move at night. They, they hear you, but they just aren't you know ready to respond yet. So I let out the long, drawn-out cow and heat call first thing in the morning on that hunt. You know, By the time it took me to get the three miles, I left real early, but you know, I got there maybe 7 o'clock or so and, and, uh, and started calling. And, and, uh, and I heard a grunt down in the valley. And eventually it just kept coming closer and closer. And he, he come up right up to me <clears throat> about... 40 yards and overshot overshot me he passed me up and they got just like 50 yards away and uh i could tell from the side that he was you know perfectly legal he's going to be a wide real wide bull i needed the 50 inches so i didn't have to worry about the brow point restriction because he was so wide but he got past me and then he stopped there a little bit well i'm sitting in the same spot where i was the evening before so i had already cleared out little shooting lanes i broke a few limbs i was kind of like the center of a spokes on a wheel where i had shooting lanes and so when he went past me you know i just had to get him to come back so i turned my head not directly at him because their ears are so they can hear so well with the great big antler palms and the big giant ears they're, they're, the, the moose's ears are really, really important to them. I mean, think about it. They live in an area where there's, you know, solid, solitude. I'm a solo hunter, but that's a solitary animal, more or less, a lot of, a lot of its, uh, a lot of its life. So, I mean, for them to hook up with each other, the calling and the mating calls are very important. That's why they come in so well, the calls, because they, you know, they're, they're sort of alone. So anyway, I cupped my hand and turned my head, uh, up, uphill. And gave a, a soft grunt, uh, and I had already called with a cow and heat. So, and I had been grunt calling. So this bull already knows that there's a cow and heat in the area, and he heard the soft the bull grunts I was given. So to his mind, 
It's game on. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> this this cow is uh, doesn't like the bull that's with him. You know, the, right. this must be an immature bull, and she don't like him, so I'm going to come in to fight. So that allows you to have, you know, a little bit more finesse with your calling, and, and you can call softer. Anyway, I like a ventriloquist. You don't want to throw your voice right at the bull because he'll pinpoint you. I didn't want them to pinpoint me because they'll just lock up like an elk or any other animal or turkey or anything. If they pinpoint you, they better be a, there better be a moose there. So I, I turned ahead and, and turned my face away and, and called. And then you could just see his, I could just see his eyes pull my binoculars up. His eyes would just roll back in his head and his ears perked like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're uphill. They're over there. And you could just see him just start marching and he started posturing right from there from 40 yards away. He's coming rocking back and forth. His nose is dripping. You know, he's drooling and dripping as he goes by me, going to that spot where he thinks they are, which is right past me. I had my shooting lanes cleared out and it was about a 17 yard shot. So that was, uh, that was a, a great, uh, great bull when he went down. I got to see him go down and, uh, and then, the, you know, then the work started. Of course, it was early in the morning and then there I, I pack all the meat away from the kill site where put it, I can't control where they fall, but you can control what you do with the meat. So I packed the moose meat 200 yards away, left it in game bags, and then marked it well. And then my first trip back back into camp three miles away. So it's nine trips. So it's like uh, nine trips, uh, 27 miles loaded then and, and uh, wow, 27 man. miles unloaded. And, you know, the last trip is uh, the antlers with whatever moose, whatever the meat was left, I think there was about 40 pounds of, of meat left. And is is that the is that the 2014 bull that's in the in, in no. the dvd yeah okay. no i haven't even gotten to that one yet <laughs> that <laughs> okay one. that's what, on the what one year was that this okay so that well i just described was in 2002 and so okay. uh that was in primal dreams so if you look on the back oh, okay. cover or in primal dreams so so the reason i tell you that story is because uh in 2014 again i'm gonna go back moose hunting and i had hunted bear and, and, and out west and other things in the in the meantime but now i'm back focus on moose again so in 2014, I had a friend, Bart Schleier, he died in 2004. So it's a 10-year anniversary of his passing. So I thought, well, I'll go moose hunting. But they opened up that unit where I told you earlier that had in the Chugach range that had right. uh, the, that the non-residents were, were closed. So now, now it had been multiple, uh, over a decade of close. So they opened back up, but it's a draw unit. So I put in for the draw. And I knew exactly where I wanted to go because I had been there and passed up those uh, those animals and the outfitters were, weren't there anymore. So it would just hopefully just be me. But, I, you know, I had a couple landing spots, you know, lined up that I thought and found me a pilot to take me over there and drop me off in 2014. So that was uh, uh, and I decided to go kind of early and I knew that terrain. It drops down to a big lake, but uh, the high country, I was hoping to catch moose. It's still, you know, like in velvet type or in still the summer portion of their range as far as they're like bachelor groups in some sense, like white-tailed and bachelor groups. They kind of hang in the high country, a little bit cooler, a little bit more water, and they feed there, you know, kind of on their own. And I was hoping to catch them there, and, and uh, that that's that's the beginning of the video is me hunting hunting them and you can see I, I call in a couple but they don't come all the way in and they're not greatly responsive but i ended up uh, sneaking up to uh, a bull and that was uh, wide enough he was about 60 inches wide he's actually with another bull and, uh, they they were just basically feeding you know they'd spar a little bit and, but they're basically feeding on willow brush and, and legumes or whatever brush that's up there and uh fireweed and and uh anyway 
And one, Michael, one thing I noticed, you're talking about the, the, the 2014 yes. um, bullets on the video. And there was one yep. thing that I caught um, in the video that you actually pulled into your, into your camera focus, but you never really said what it was. And I think I know what it was, so I'm going to ask, see if I was, if I was right. But it was um, after you had, had hiked all the meat back, and I think then you said that that one was also nine trips, which is what threw me off a while ago when yeah. I asked you if we were yeah. talking about 2014. But, yeah, it usually comes um, out about that. <laughs> obviously. Now I know that. <laughs> yeah. But was did you actually have an electric fence set up around Yeah, the, yeah. That's I, what I, I thought. Don't talk about a lot of that stuff but over the years you learn tricks from other folks and and a lot of guys that hunt on hunt blacktails sick of blacktails on kodiak island they have all kind of trouble with brown bears and bears and so i have i, I think the bear shocker is, is a company called bear shocker it's a small uh self self-contained uh, electric fence it runs on 2d batteries supposedly for five weeks and they give you enough wire rope wire to string out you know 12 foot by 12 foot uh, section with a collapsible uh, stakes and you know it's not it's not much but you hang uh, 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 ribbons on it you know it's, a, it's it give you enough to put th- two strands of uh, electric fence wire around the meat cache and sure. then put uh, you know flagging tape on it to make the bears see that and be curious you want to if they come in you want them to sting them on their nose you know, you, you know, with the moose, you, you, the moose, you break all the rules. I mean, you're, you're not supposed to have all the meat in your camp and all this, but your camp is either most of the time near your runway or near your pickup spot. You're getting flown in. These are all tundra tired uh, planes, that, planes that land on gravel or whatever. Or if you're on a lake with the floats, you're also doing the same thing. You're generally, I mean, you could bring your meat cache at the other end of the lake and then you, you camp at one end. You can get away from your meat cache then in, in that respect and, you, you know, just, you know, taxi the boat. I mean, the taxi the plane over to the other end of the lake. You know, that type of stuff works. But, you know, when you're on a landing strip or, or, or a gravel bar like, like, I'm at, like I typically am, you're bringing the meat right here, right where you live, you know. And it's just, it's just a sure. good peace of mind. Yeah. So some of the things I didn't talk about, cause, uh, but uh, you can see them there in the, in the video. Yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's a time thing. And I just, you know, I, I, uh, as a, a, a farm boy, grew up on a farm. I, you know, just looking at it, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. I figured I had to ask you. But yeah. I'm, I'm going I'm to go back to one thing you said uh, just right after Nick asked the question. You were talking about, you know, the the physical preparation, and then you got the mm-hmm. mental preparation mm-hmm. uh, of just being out there solo and talking about, you know, whitetail hunting solo. But that there's very few places in North America. Well, I guess there's probably some up in 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 Canada where you could whitetail hunt and be mm-hmm. out in the wilderness. But yeah. it's got to be that that can't be near the same. I mean, where you're at, based on what I could see from the you know the Alaskan footage. It's not like you can just, oh, I forgot something, I can run to the store. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's the whole thing about it. Even if you're out west, even when I was out on a trailhead or whatever, it's pitch black at night. But as long as you got down and found that pack trail or that game trail on the ridge, and you felt good, you know, you, you're okay. You had the anxiety, you know, you got to get to that point, And then, boom, once you get there, you can walk back to your camp. Or once you know where you're at, you can, you know, then, then you're okay at dark, you know, because most of the time your the animals are moving right, right at dark, or, you know, right before dark, you know, elk and stuff. But, and so if something happened, you could walk to there. And but if you're, you could also get up on some of them high bluffs, and, you know, and look out, and you can you can see light, you know, you can there's there's a, 
there's a house you know, way over there somewhere, you know, or whatever. You can see some of that in some places out west. You know, other places you can't, but also you have that feeling of you can walk out from here. You know, I can, I can, it might be 20 miles, but I can walk out from here. But when, when you're in a super cub and, and, they, and you're flying in, you know, a two hour flight, um, you know, uh, you're not walking out from 200 miles from the nearest town, you know. <laughs> so Alaska, yeah, you, you are alone. You're, you're there alone. And yeah. back in the, in those days when I was telling you when I saw those 40 bulls and, and in 2007 and so forth and other trips, you know, I never had any communication. But eventually my wife just got too, uh, too much anxiety of not having contact with me other than I'd leave a note on the tree and maybe an outfitter would, would, would see it or I'd have some, you know, some way to have somebody where somebody knew where I was. I mean, I'm not just out there with nobody knows where I am. I always have somebody know where I'm at, but it, at least my camp anyway. And uh, so without that, so in, in 2002, that was the first year that I had a satellite phone. And so I've been carrying a satellite phone when I go on these, these trips uh, as of late. I had one with right. me in 2014 as well. Yeah, because based on based on what I could see in that in in the in the footage, um, you're no longer chasing solitude at that point. You found it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I kind of coined that from uh, an article I I wrote, uh, and actually I, I I wrote a story in my book about the life of uh, some somewhat of the life. It's hard to you can't describe anybody's life in in a couple of, in a two thousand words or four thousand words. But anyway, Bart Schleier. And he always uh, uh, remind me of a guy that was hunting in Wyoming and you know, started out there and then up to Montana and he's hunting bighorn sheep and stuff. And then eventually got to Alaska, but he would go into the Brooks Range and, you know, he'd hike way back in for dolls, sheep. But if he ever saw anybody, he would never go back there. You know, he wouldn't want to go back to that spot. If he was on a river float and someone floated past or he saw somebody, he, he would he wouldn't want to go there again. Like he would walk 20 miles up up uh, up a canyon to get to a sheep and find out that someone else found a, a closer landing strip could land closer and he wouldn't he wouldn't hunt there anymore so that was a sort of ch- in my mind he was chasing or he was more of the guy chasing solitude than than, than i was but uh and then he ended up eventually in uh, in the yukon you know and he ended up living in, Ca- in canada so he could hunt his beloved sheep and uh, he ended up uh yeah he ended up dying uh uh, out there on a moose hunt, you know, doing very similar to what to what I to what I do. So uh, yeah, wow. it it brings reality to you, and I, it, it's a a good read. You can also read it on our website, Brothers of the Bow. I have that article there about Bart Schleyer. Um, you can check it out and even do a Google search on Bart Schleyer. Very very cool, Mike. We're gonna we're gonna slide into our. Uh, passing down traditions mid-roll, and then we will uh, we'll circle back and probably pick up about where we're leaving off, okay? Okay. This week on Passing Down Traditions, I want to spend just a few minutes talking to everyone about an amazing organization that is working hard to protect your hunting rights. That is the Sportsman's Alliance. And it's not just hunting. The Sportsman's Alliance is working hard every day protecting the rights of hunters, fishers, and trappers. Now, I've been using the Sportsman's Alliance website for quite some time now to monitor for threats to hunting, fishing, and trapping. And I've even shared some of their articles on the traditional outdoors website. 
You may even remember when I used this segment here to bring your attention to an anti-hunting group that had persuaded a judge to temporarily halt a managed hunt on a state park in West Virginia. And I first learned of that issue from the Sportsman's Alliance website and found out that they are actively involved in fighting for that hunt to be allowed to continue. Now, personally, I've wanted to join the Alliance for some time, but I was working towards paying off my BHA Life membership and really just couldn't afford uh, another uh, club membership. Then just this week, I downloaded and listened to the Meat Eater podcast from July 2nd, uh, and Stephen Ranella and his crew were talking to Evan, Brian, and Sean of the Sportsman's Alliance, and it really struck home uh, the constant threats that we face on a regular basis from those that would see an end to hunting, trapping, and yes, even fishing. Organizations like PETA and the Humane Society will never be satisfied. Regardless of how many battles they win or lose, they will never stop. Now, the Sportsman's Alliance has been fighting the good fight since 1977. They started as a small group of people uh, working to prevent an anti-trapping effort in the state of Ohio. And the Sportsman's Alliance is now a nationwide organization, and they need your help. So I have two favors that I would ask of you, our listeners. First, if you have not already done so, please take the time after you finish our podcast to head over to the Meat Eater podcast and download and listen to episode number 123. And in this episode, you'll learn much more about the Sportsman's Alliance than I have time to go into here in this um, mid-roll segment. It is well worth your time to give it a listen. Second, and before I ask this favor, I will tell you that immediately after listening to Ranella's podcast, I went and joined the Sportsman's Alliance. So I will not ask you to consider doing something that I have not already done myself. So please consider joining. A membership to the Sportsman's Alliance starts at a measly $35 a year. That is less than most people spend on a pack of broadheads each year. You owe it to yourself and to future generations of hunters to at least spend a few minutes looking into what they've accomplished and what they are busy doing today. So head over to their website and please do consider joining. Uh, You can also send them a donation while you're there. uh, And better yet, you can even offer to volunteer if you have the time to help protect our hunting, fishing and trapping heritage. Now, the website is www.sportsmansalliance.org, and of course, you'll find a link in the show notes to the website, and you can also just Google Sportsman's Alliance and find it very easily that way. And now back to Mr. Mike Mitten and Chasing Solitude. Mike, you've mentioned the the Wenzels a couple times now and your brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, How did Brothers of the Bow come about? Where and when were those relationships formed? Uh, let's see, Gene and Barry were in the professional bowhunter society, and they, at the time they lived in Montana, and, every, and we all knew them as whitetail guys. They were the first information go-to guys back in the, the 70s and 80s, so that's where we knew them, but where we actually met them eventually was either going to a Pope and Young banquet or, or, a, or a PBS, a professional bowhunter society banquet. You know, we got to meet them in person. And then we, you know, we have you know, kind of a friendship with them. But of course, they met a lot of people. We weren't necessarily um, close, close friends with them because they they were close friends with a whole lot of people. <laughs> you know, they were out in Montana, and we were my brothers and I were in Illinois. But uh, in around 2000, my brother David and I were thinking about uh, making a solo hunting film because he he we all liked the film a lot. And I don't want to 
I mean, I talk about moose, but our main passion living in Illinois is, is whitetails, is mature whitetail bucks. And so we would film a lot of what we saw is before trail cameras and all that, you know, so we would look for sheds, you know, just, you know, passionately find it, shed antlers because the antlers, multiple antlers give multiple years of a deer's life. You can follow that and you can get a good idea how old he is. That's the only way to tell about the, the age really on the hoof when you're, when you're dealing with a wild animal. And then we would film in the summertime. So we're, so we, we're, as my brother improved his editing skills and the camera equipment improved, we had the idea to, to uh, create a solo hunting film. Just, just focus on all the things that we love about the hunt. Just some of the things I told you about the animals that we see, the, our experiences, not so much the kill, because the kill is not anticlimactic in a way, but I mean, it's only a small portion of this great adventure that you're having, you know. And so we want to capture all that. And so we're showing footage of that to our friends, Gene and Barry, and eventually saw it. And uh, they, they were like, there's no way you can just keep this for yourselves, you know, that we wanted to join. So, so Gene and Barry joined my brothers, Mark and, and David, and the five of us, you know, uh, uh, started working on the project that eventually became Primal Dreams. At that time, the Internet was going and, you know, we had to get a website. And my brother David coined the the term well there's five of us five brothers five brothers of the bow and so we trademarked that that's where it first came out when 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 we launched primal dreams in uh, 2005 and uh you know we get comments from guys like ted nugent who who wish they thought of it or whatever he has his own (laughs) blood uh Blood brothers, Blood brothers or something. He has other things, but brothers of the bow sounds a little more classy to me. But it has a meaning behind it because there were five of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it really was such a. I mean, Primal Dreams is such a groundbreaking thing. I mean, and it. I remember when somebody told me, you know, you got to watch this. And actually, it was uh, in the Michigan Longbow Association library. There was a VHS tape of it, and this was only like yeah. you know four years ago, and. Uh, I said, oh, it's Primal Dreams is here. And, and uh, I remember a member said, no, you've got to watch Primal Dreams. He's like, it's essential. It's essential video for you to watch. And um, I took it home and I watched it uh, that weekend. And it and it blew my mind just because it was I, I just loved how the focus was just on the animals yeah. and the scenery. And I've never yeah. seen anything like it before. Yeah. And then through the whole film, you never see two people together in the film. It was always just a one solitary person. So we kept our our i guess our theme but it got so big because there was five of us that we went to 10 or 11 different states and the focus went beyond you know say elk or moose or something it went well into whitetails and 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 like yes the elk and turkey and you know the the four seasons and the scouting and and the summer whitetail stuff and we kind of drew it out like boy there's so much summertime scouting which is well most of the time you are Mm -hmm. scouting more than you actually hunt and then with the hunting you know, we don't kill the first animal we see. So we kind of wanted to project, you know, man's participation in nature and the passing on of the heritage and so forth. But our main focus was just you know, man's participation in nature and to show something that you can take home and show the wife and kids and say, you know, you come home, you come home with a, a smile on your face and your wife will say, oh, you, you got one. You got one. You know, you look at that smile and you'll say, no, I didn't get one. But this is what I saw. This is what happened. <laughs> this is my experience, you know, and there you could have it. And we didn't have it at the beginning to show uh, like, look, you know, like 
look at me and be real boastful about, look at us, the, you know, how great hunters we are. We were just human forms participating in nature. So anybody who view, who views that film, who watches that film can put their self in those same situations where we are. They can look to the, their partner next to them or their girlfriend sitting in the couch next to them and say, yeah, I, this happened to me. And they can fill in the blanks about what's going on. So there wasn't a lot of words in it. There was just narrations. There wasn't a lot of an, on camera dialogue. I don't think there was even any. Um, but there's just, you know, it's very, very little at the end. And, uh, but, uh, that, that was the whole premise for it. And as we built it, my brother David is like, man, you know, I'm not going to put all this together. So I wrote a poem for the end of the thing, which sort of became the script for the whole movie. And once, once I wrote that poem at the end, it was as sort of an outline for him that he could fill in the blanks and, and the film became so big. Like when, you know, are we ready to launch? No, we're not ready. And that, so it took another year and another year. <laughs> I mean, it took basically five years. And so, uh, basically, I don't know what we had four or 500 hours of footage all titrated down to, to a two hour film. And we won, you know, some awards or he did anyway for the editing and, and the use of music and, and videography. And, you know, the cameras had come to that point where there was all done with, uh, with camcorders, but, you know, we get a call from, or Barry did from, uh, from a cameraman from national geographic saying like, who are you guys? And, you know, this is, this is excellent material. I don't even never heard of you guys, but you know your detail and the the thought and everything flowed so well. And uh, you get to give all that credit basically to my brother David, who did the editing for that film, and as well as the sequel. The sequel came out, you know, another five years later. And you mentioned the word. This is an essential filming. Well, that's what we named the the, <laughs> the sequel. It's called Essential Encounters. It was a brilliant word drop on my part, but <laughs> but you know, <laughs> Mike, that's the thing though. Like, and to this day, if I if if a um if a non hunter asked me what hunting was like, I would point them to those two videos. Because you really can't understand. I mean, it, it really is about that connection and that nature. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm. Uh, it, they're they're great. But I'm sorry, I cut you off there, Steve. What were you going to say? No, no, it's okay. I, I was going to echo what you what you were saying, um, and 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 go back in time a little bit as well. But you know, the the uh, you're right. Those 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 videos capture the essence, and it even goes back to, you know, kind of what we said. When we when we started this podcast is you know it it's a reflection of what what time spent outdoors really is to me it's you know the 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 hunt is great the 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 kill is great that's why I'm out there but it's the it's the experiences and that's what those videos capture to me is the the total experience it's not just about the kill the kill is kind of the means to the end um, yeah. So, you know, I, I just wanted to echo what you were saying, but I, at the same time, I want to go back a little bit further in time because, you know, I, and I can't remember, I think it was bow hunting October whitetails. I do remember when that video came out, um, yes. a long in time the, ago, in, in 80, <laughs> um, you're right. And right. And it was, you know, that was during a time when you had, you know, I don't want to go ahead and throw tons of names out, but you had Fitzgerald, you had Noel Feather, you had a lot of people out there doing those videos. And then, you know, bow hunting October whitetails came along. And even back then it was, it was different because you had these, yes, they were hunting. Yes, they were serious about hunting, but you could just tell the Wenzel brothers just had oh, yeah. personality. The, yeah. I mean, the, it, it, the first ones that, that, that they did was really done with Barry because Barry, 
uh, really didn't want to have anything to do with with the writing and writing a book. So Gene gravitated towards you know sharing their experiences in in, in written word and wrote books. You know, uh, One Man's White Tales and Hunting Ruddy White Tales, and many other books since then. Whereas Barry got the opportunities to start uh, you know the, the filming stuff. So and there was a couple of videos that came out even before Hunting October White Tales, but that's the one where you know the first shots. On, on game mm-hmm. were taken, exactly. but the charisma they have and the, and 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 the fun that they have and the, you know their sense of humor is just spot on. I mean, they tell the story so many times over. I mean, we go to these shows and people will ask them the story. You know, they'll, they'll just go roll up that story. So just like at Compton's, for example, all the new stories that Barry experiences this past hunting season. He repeated a hundred times at, at Compton's. So imagine him doing that. And so when when it comes time for the punchline, they're right on. You know, they're smooth and they're funny and all that. And and so like when we did Primal Dreams, that people were waiting for that Winslow humor. They were waiting for the right. humor, and the and the humor never came. Never came because <laughs> it was a serious film until maybe maybe the very last scene in the movie where this this guy's carrying out a couple of deer. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that might be the, la- the the humorous part of Primal Dreams, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, for sure, those guys were groundbreaking, and, and you can't uh, you can't beat them as far as knowledge and as, as what they know about whitetails and their passion and, the, and the passion for it. Well, there and 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 therein lies the quandary, and really, where I want to bring this this back to to Mike Mitten now is, mm-hmm. you know, you you think about that, you think about your involvement with the brother of, of the bow, and you you know the the stuff that you've done with the Wenzel brothers and this uh, charismatic, dynamic duo personality, and then you turn and go and do these solo hunts out in the wilderness of Alaska. That's just such a sharp contrast um, of, of experiences of hunting experiences. And, you know, I just want, you know, is the, is the solo something that you were always driven to do or is it, you know, did, did it just, you know, is it something that you just, as you, as you got older, you, you felt drawn to do it, It's like I said, the, the contrast there is just yeah, really yeah. Uh, amazing. I, to I me. see where you're going. I don't really know myself other than, you know, we were, there were seven kids in our family. And so, um, I don't know. I, I got a job, you know, in high school and, and you didn't really have, have stuff. I remember playing basketball with my mom won't like this, but you know, I had to put cardboard in the bottom of your shoes cause you got them wore out, you know, so much that you feel the little, the little staples in the bottom of your shoes. You got to put padding in there. And, you know, so when I finally got a job and stuff, you sort of like help support the family type of thing. So at that time I would, if I wanted something, I was working and I, I started buying it, you know, and I, and the, my younger brothers, I would buy them Christmas presents and things like that. But in, in other words, I, I was started becoming real self-reliant. And if I, if I wanted something, I would work towards that end. And I had that, that, I guess, um, philosophy or that work, work ethics as, as a kid. And then uh, I just brought that with me into the, into the hunting. And, but why would you go on, out on your own? It just, I don't know. I, I guess I can't explain it other than the facts that it, it really charges your batteries to me. And I do uh, infectious disease research for a pharmaceutical company for, for 20 years and then the last, uh, the last 15 years doing uh, cancer research for the same company. But, you know, I, so, so that's another contrast. So getting out and into the wilderness just sort of uh, rejuvenates the spirit, allows me to, to think about life's resolutions and just be with nature and um i don't know 
I, I don't always go alone. I mean, I always had uh, friends that come to like some of the some of the species like uh, antelope and and mule deer or something like that. You can you know some white tails. You can hunt with other people and you know get together and stuff. But things like moose and elk and bear seems like they were just lend themselves to the soloness. And I ended up you know kind of doing that. Probably went on over twenty something over twenty something solo hunts. But again, I'm in Illinois. I got to wait for another whole year for, for my hunt to, to, to start again, to, to go do it again. Whereas my friends and people I've met out west, you know, they're hunting. You know, some states have 10, 8 to 10 big game species. And, you know, they have seasons, you know, around, you know, almost, you know, all fall long. They, go, they start in, in August and so forth. Whereas us, we just had whitetails. But, but to me, I had to put that effort to... Uh, to go to go do that that's when i met a guy like bart slyer he was you know kind of took me aback because he was like man i can't believe you do what you do i go what do you mean because you come from northern illinois and you go out here in the bush you know that's incredible i go the stuff you do is is, is superhuman incredible he goes yeah but you know you have the mindset to do that on your own you know so he so we were not in awe of each other by any means but it's just that, uh, you know, he found that connection, what, what you're saying now, how can you come from the northern Illinois, a highly populated area, just to get away from it all. And for me, it's all about the recharging the batteries and, and, and the spiritualness that you feel when you're out there after a couple of weeks. And just, you know, the rejuvenated spirit, not so much uh, getting away from getting away from any uh, responsibilities that you have or if you're depressed or something like that or you know get you know get out away from from human civilization it's 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 quite the reverse you know it's like i feel a lot of times at home out there but it's it's contrary to other people that that can't think that way and i know i put my wife when she was alive uh through some of that stress of you know the anxiety of not knowing how i'm doing and things like that also my parents and stuff even to this day they're still alive at uh 84 years old and they're so happy this year that i'm going with somebody up there to alaska but but there's still relish in, in in all my stories and as well when i get back home so well mike I, I have to say it's 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 rather refreshing uh, to hear you answer that that way um and really I, I think it's probably almost a little bit modest because you i think a lot of people that would that would hear what you've done or, or watch the video, you know, the, the concept of, you know, well, he's just out there to, to challenge himself against nature. And, and that's really, it, it's almost like you're really more searching for the harmony of nature rather than yeah, the challenge. Yeah. So that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And I'm not alone in his thinkings. I have a lot of friends that are doing this, doing the same thing. You know, if you, if you Google Monty Browning or Brian Burkhardt or some of these other guys, they're they uh, they're out there uh, doing this some uh, similar stuff. I know, I, and I know those guys. I don't I don't know them personally, but I definitely know mm-hmm. who they are and some of the things yeah. they've accomplished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. yeah, we've heard fantastic stories from their camps for sure. I mean, that's yeah, it's it's yeah. definitely a, a very special breed. Uh, Mike, let's talk about some stuff uh, for the gearheads out there a little bit. Uh, tell yeah. tell us tell us about your equipment setup for this film and and if it changed at all from what you used like earlier. Um, you know, whether bows, arrows, broadheads, uh, okay. camping gear. I mean, whatever you feel like yeah. talking. Yeah. About. Okay. For from the first film, uh, the first uh, sequence, I, I I always advertise that I go to three different mountain ranges in this film from 2014 to, to 2017. And if you look in 2014, I have a, a Eureka tent. You know, it's got fiberglass poles and a 
a rain fly and this oh my old go-to tent you know and uh probably weighs 10 or 12 pounds <laughs> and uh you know that's contrary to like you just call them gearheads or whatever but the, these <laughs> they're, they're into the high-tech stuff and they want everything lighter and lighter and these guys are smart you know why why not you know so at the end the last hunt you see i'm in a i'm in a kifaru sawtooth so that's a big difference and a, a big drop in weight as far as the tent goes because the three things your tent your your your, your sleeping uh, gear your and your bag you can cut a lot of weight you can cut a lot of bulk weight you know just right there and those those three things and that's what i've done in the last few years i guess my knees are starting to get bad. I got uh, uh, torn meniscus and arthritis and so forth, and so I can't carry as much weight. And then I got a camera equipment and stuff like that, and a Super Cub plane. It's, you know, you don't get 60 to 70 pounds of gear, and it's just the physical volume, you can't, you know, put that much in the plane. You know, I, I fly into the bush with my food for three weeks on my lap, you know, <laughs> on a big ball on my lap. That's my food huh. flying in because I got the stuff, you know, stacked in there. And... Uh, but uh, the tent and stuff has have changed, and I use uh, uh, the slick bag now. I have a, a zero-degree slick bag from Kifaru, and it's pretty pretty light bag. I like that. It's got a top zipper and stuff, and I got a little cot now because the sleeping is, is hard as I get older, and I'm usually on a lot of rock. And when you're younger, you know, you, you can recover quicker. But as you get older, the muscles, you know, ache a little more from what you put them through during the day that you want to sleep well. So a sleeping pad. And even the last trip I had, uh, you know, uh, a big Agnes uh, a, a pad that you blow up and stuff. But uh, that one, it leaked on me. So I was like, man, I'm stuck out here in Alaska with no no, uh, no padding or no air mattress. And so I ended up sleeping on my clothes most of the time. And I actually mm-hmm. took the took the uh, knee pads out of uh, out of the Sitka gear. Sitka, Sitka mountain pants have knee pads that are removable. I took them out of there and put them in my underwear on my hips. And on each side where I lay on my side, <laughs> you don't drive your hips into the ground, you know. So <laughs> different things you got to come up with when you're by yourself. But uh, but uh, the gear and stuff, people would see me in the films. Because I've been on the Sitka uh, pro staff since 2007. Mainly, you know, mainly for whitetail stuff, but I also give them, you know, advice on the Western stuff and, uh, you know, sure. the, the moose thing and whatever. So they want, you know, they want visibility as well. So, of course, I write articles and, of course, the book and the video. So there is some visibility on, on my part. But as far as testing and stuff, I work pretty close with John uh, Barklow from uh, from Sitka now and several other ones that, that they move around. The, the players are, are, are shifting and going different places but uh i'm still with them now i'm part of the athlete staff so i get to try some of the new things so the gear that i like for camo and stuff of course all all sicka related stuff um uh the kelvin active is what i actually was wearing when i shot the last moose and uh, i wear that and this this, this the the uh the core layering is is pretty well. I, I like the Stratus the Stratus line for whitetail. I also wear that in in Alaska too because of the wind stoppers in it and the brush suede. And the the older pants have a cuff on the bottom where I could fold up my. Um, they have a gusset actually. They did at the time. I could roll up the uh, hip waders and stuff them underneath underneath that flap and then uh, cinch it tight. It would be a, a a clean transition down to the actual oh, gotcha. footing part of the of the of the pant but they don't mm-hmm. make those pants anymore but i had i still have mine that i i use for that 
And anything like you pull up a knee or whatever, nylon or, or your your hip boots, I go to Stealth Wrap, stealthwrap.com. Uh, it's in Michigan, and he's, I get large bat, bats of uh, this uh, peel and stick. Uh, it's like moleskin you put on your tree stands. Uh, stealth strips. Yeah. But yeah. this is, you get a, I call them and get a custom one. I mean, the larger I strip. You. I don't, don't cut it in strips. I'll give it all one piece. Then I can cut it, taper it, and, and just peel it and stick it to the uppers of my hip boots. Mm-hmm. And so they have that sort of moleskin around the whole thing. And then you can stalk and sneak around and you can go through the willow brush and the pucker brush. That's what I, I use, you know, a lot, uh, as far as that goes. Um, I do that every year. I know Sitka has uh, hip boots now and uh, or hip waders now, but um, different footwear. You know, everything is wet in Alaska. You're going to get wet. You're going to get wet on the ins- inside. Um, but I thought, you know, of course, with the recurve bow, I've been, I like tall tines. I mentioned Brian Wessel earlier. Well, the trip I went in 2014, I used the uh, uh, South Cox's Stalker. Uh, Bart Slyer commemorative bow. So I, it was the, like I said, the uh, 10 year anniversary of Bart's passing. So I used the bow right. and his namesake and on the first hunt, 65 pounds. And all my, all my bows are recurves at 64 inch. I, I think I have one 62 inch, but all the other bows are 64 inch. And Wood arrows? Oh, uh, I mainly use the uh, 2219 aluminum arrows. I have some wood that you hunt with whitetails in the late season, but for, Flying into Alaska, I take the broadheads off. I number the broadhead, match it to the shaft, number the broadhead and the shaft, and I take the take the broadhead off and, and wrap it and put it in a box and stuff the 2219s into a two-inch PVC pipe and put a dozen arrows in there, and I can ship it up into, you know, get it to Alaska on the plane or whatever and then pop them out. And they're all fletching. I don't use rubber veins or anything. And sure, the fletchings, sure. they you know, pop back out, and I use five five inch four five inch fletch so four fletch five inches uh for basically what i i shot my first deer with or moose with and it's what i've used from the 70s all the way till now i haven't really changed (laughs) is is there a reason for the (laughs) is there a reason for the four fletch mike um just for me i just want the arrow to recover I mean, I'm, I know you're going to lose a little arrow speed, and, and guys are saying, well, if your bow is tuned correctly, you won't need that. And that, that's true. And you're, if you're standing correctly, then you won't need that. And if your posture is right and your form's right, then you don't need all that. But when you're in Alaska, twisted and up around brush and, and all wet and everything, then some of that stuff kind of goes to the back burner. So I just want a little bit, a little more rudder on there. And for one reason, if you hit something, if you hit a twig, the arrow will recover quicker if you have more fletching on it. If you just have a bare shaft, you hit a twig, your arrow is not going to recover very, very quickly. And so for me, it's just a, a psychological thing is what I've always had. And, you know, I, I like close encounters, close range, and I like to see it. I like to, I like to see that flight of that arrow. So super, super fast uh, bows, either traditional or, or compounds with little tiny fletching don't seem as appealing to me because I like to I like to see it. <laughs> I'm the, I'm like the same. Go, I'm I like the same see, way. Yep. I like to see it go into a Eland or as a, a Kudu or or a Gimsbuck or 
whatever or a moose or elk or whatever i want to see it you know i mean that's my favorite part of the whole thing is watching that arrow fly through the air like that and and yeah, so it's, I, a, it's, it's fractions of a second and that's yep. your favorite spot <laughs> your favorite part <laughs> exactly i mean all the possibility all the all the resolution yeah. all the hope oh, yeah. it's all in that one that yeah. one instance um yeah. and yeah. and you shoot uh you shoot tough head broadheads right well, that's what I use for moose, and, and I use them when I went to South Africa for uh, for I shot a, a eland, yeah, but uh, yeah, but otherwise I for for moose and stuff I, I do use a tough head. Uh, it's a it's not real wide, but I want to make sure I get in. I'm just yeah, you're so worried about getting through those big ribs and stuff, and they're they're two inches wide and they're thicker in the middle, kind of you know. Sure concave convex i guess you'd call it uh and the big old shoulder blade if you hit if you get through that shoulder blade at the top you know then you're pretty high in the lung if you're getting low near where the heart is that shoulder blade is so thick and the ridge is so thick it's pretty hard to get through that but anyway the ribs and stuff is what i worry about in the hide and you know i do my own taxidermy and of course you're going to skin or cape this animal so i mean no one's doing it for you so i know how thick the hides are, and uh, you know, and you can get through. I, I mean, I shoot a 65 pound bow. The 22 19 arrows are heavy. The tough head is heavy. I put a, a 75 grain uh, a tapered adapter up front, and so I end up with a I end up with an arrow that's close to 800 grains out of a 65 pound bow. Um, I got a long power stroke, 30 31 inch draw. So I mean. It's not going very fast, but it's, it uh, it hits pretty good, you know. And and, Nick, and Nick's plan on hunting this year with twenty two sixteens, oddly enough, and yeah. I actually love the twenty two nineteens. I've yeah, got they a, have a thicker of, wall, yeah, yep. they, and a little more a bit durable. But you know, you shoot them into a rock, they're you know they're not like carbons. I mean, they're going to bend or whatever. But at least they're either can, straight or mm-hmm. bent. Yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. are you using the uh, with the seventy five grain adapter, Mike? Are you are you using the three hundred grain broadhead, or are you using the uh, the one the below two, the, the two? Yeah, the yeah the two twenty five. So, so two twenty five with a seventy five grain. So I got three hundred there plus the 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 converted insert there. But I got a little bit more weight on the back of the of the arrow too, because of the four five fletch, and I probably have forty something grains on the back of the arrow, with a big uh, eleven thirty seconds knock. And that's my arrow. Um, well, that'll do the job. I, I just don't change. I just, I guess I don't change. You know, you hear that from a lot of the old timers. Oh, you don't if it doesn't work. But if people watch me shoot or they film me shoot, they'll see. Oh man, you're you're not tuned quite right, or you, you don't have your you didn't twist enough twists on your brace height and these types of things. But if they also watch me, if they also watch me shoot, they'll also uh, they they can't imagine that I can even hit anything because I, I barely I don't know I shouldn't say some of this stuff, but I mean I you know I barely touch my face you know just I don't have a solid anchor by any any means <laughs> you can say whatever you want to mike all what people here is me well, and nick and we're yeah, gonna, and, we're gonna and, let and you honestly talk. mike i think yeah. steve will tell you yeah. i'm I, you pretty much are describing exactly the same thing that i do yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there's no judgment here whatsoever yeah. I got, so i have troubles you know so but yeah, controlling the shot is, is something on my mind but you, you know you don't want it to be in the forefront you want it to be in the forefront when you're practicing and on the practice range and trying to some people argue about there's no such thing as muscle memory, but we'll just use that term of repetitiveness and sure. having your back feel 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 the shot type of thing. And, mm-hmm. and you'll see, I, I practice with a backpack on. I practice kneeling, crawling, and I go to you know where I'm in south. I'm in northern Illinois, but in southeast Wisconsin, we have 
five or six different bow clubs within 20 miles of my house. So any given weekend, there's 3D shoots and the state shoots. There's all kinds of shooting, you know, ability or, or opportunity around here where I live. So, but uh, so you try to shoot shoot a lot. Well, and I'm just the opposite. So I'm a I'm a I'm a deliberate draw, you know, anchor hold focus mm-hmm. on my spot. Yeah, I'm trying to get out. there. It's taken me 40 years to get there. I'm trying to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if it, if it works for you, this, and I was going to bring up, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, you were talking about the, the heads and so forth and you, yeah. you know, it works for you and you, yeah. you know, you've, if you, if you bring up arrows and broadheads in any conversation, oh uh, yeah. It, yeah. yeah. It, and it, that's kind of the point. If it mm-hmm. works for you, then yeah. keep doing it. You know, yeah. I'm I'm a big high FOC, high momentum guy, yeah. and I shoot yeah. I shoot the small. I'm kind of the opposite of, yeah. of you and Nick. I shoot three yeah. three inch shields, um, yeah. and it but it but it works for me. So mm-hmm. you know, if it if it works for you, do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you ever hear I, of a, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I said you hear of a guy Scott Anzac. He lives up here by us, like the world champion shooter, and he's got everything tuned down and out shoot with him sometime and he'll say i you know i know you're having trouble but there's nothing i can do to help you because i have no idea <laughs> how your how your arrows are hitting the target type of thing but as great a shot as he is in his credit you know his shots are going to be 15 yards or less he's not going to take the big long shots at deer or anything else he likes to hunt from the ground and he still wants the satisfaction of the things that you guys just talked about you know the arrow going in seeing the arrow go in you know waiting for a shot even though he can make those shots on the range all the time out to 60 yards his shot is still 15 so in our in my mind i'm still on the same page same page with him i mean i'm looking for that you know as close as i can get type of opportunities sure and, you know you just you know you just know not to uh, that's beyond your capability or or basically beyond uh your respect for that animal type of thing you know and, well, I can shoot. And we struggle farther, with it. I we really, all struggle with it. But right, I really want that fifteen yard or less shot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, Mike, you were talking about the uh, where we're, we we kind of get. I just love listening to you talk, so I'm just sitting back and listening. But I'm gonna go back to you know when you're talking about your you're carrying your lunch in on your on your lap or your food in oh, on yeah, your lap, yeah, and yeah, you've only yeah. got so much room. Yeah. Uh, how does that? Uh, <laughs> I've just got to bring this up, but how does how does that big four fifty four Casul fit in? Fit into the, fit into oh, the, the math on it. Yeah. Uh, that's just uh, uh, that's just a psychological advantage, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I bring a, a handgun. And some guys bring pepper spray. Some bring bolts. If I could, I'd maybe bring bolts. But since 9-11, you know, it's easier it's easier to fly with a, with a, with a declared uh, handgun than it is any of the pepper spray. You get up there and you, cause you can't carry right. the pepper spray on uh, any of the commercial flights where, where you can't check your uh, your handgun as luggage but uh, that's what i carry basically you know if you got bear you get in trouble you know you can start doing something at 30 you know 50 yards you can start doing something even a noise maker or one of the air horns or something like that you can start doing something with the bear spray you're you you, you gotta pretty wait much, you close. can't you gotta wait till they're coming up close and you know and it, it, they both have their advantages you throw a mist you know, you don't have to be as accurate with the bear spray, and, and how accurate are you going to be under pressure? You, I haven't been tested like that. You know, who who is? But it's just very few people, anyway. You know, thousands of people trudge through Alaska, no encounters. You know, I, you know, people like all oh, these adventures. You know, I have bear come to my camp or, or whatever, but I've never felt really, really threatened. I mean, I had a pistol drawn only once out of all these, all these times, but. Um, 
you know, the bear wasn't even threatening. It's just basically I didn't even have it raised. I just had it at my side, you know, in my hand. But other than that, no, no, I haven't even had a chance to, to, to pull it. Now, I have other friends that have had to use it. but uh, So I listen to their stories and some of the advice that they get, you know, the, about, about being able to do something, you know. And, and um, uh, you know, others, you know, they... It's confounding. You got to go through a check. You got to get through the airport. You got to, oh, your ammunition's got to be over here. You got to have a key that's going to hold up. They, some guys just say, screw it. You know, they'll just buy the, the bear spray, have the outfitter have it or the pilot, you know, carry it on the plane with them and they just use that, you know. And, and you know, so there, it's, it's two different camps. But uh, so for me, the 454 is a super red hog, has a longer barrel. It's not the little sh- short barreled one. So it's a seven, yeah. and a half, seven and a half inch barrel. So you can. Do something with it, and you know, you, you can kill something with it, eat something with it. You know, I mean, you know, if you if you get into trouble, you can do something more than just a pepper spray. You know, but uh, I hunted with handguns for for many years, um, and and I've I've shot the um, the Freedom Arms in mm-hmm. four fifty four casual, mm-hmm. but I never mm-hmm. owned one. But that is mm-hmm. a that is a beast of a handgun. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if you'd ever had to if you'd ever had to use it. So it sounds yeah, like yeah, no, not not yet. Knock on wood. Cool deal. You know, I had a question about um, actually actually uh, making the DVD and are actually approaching okay. approaching your films. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how much of yeah. it do you actually plan? Um, and how much of it is spur of the moment? I mean, I I know you have like yeah. the opportunities is not something you can control, but you have a lot of good yeah. little snippets and and you know like being on the cub, yeah, being some on cool the stuff. yeah like yeah. being on the cub and even the little things yeah. you know where you're putting the broadhead back in the back in the quiver yeah after, yeah everything know. yeah without spoken word yeah you try to have things you don't want to i don't it's a solo hunt so i'm not talking a lot to myself so i want it to i want the the visualness to 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 speak you know, my mind so to speak and and that i've been blessed with having my brother david do the editing which for primal dreams and essential encounters which are both great films and this time um, he was too busy with his family and stuff. He's got more kids and stuff since he had back then and, you know, married, got married and so forth. So I couldn't rely on him, but I have a son that just graduated with the film production degree in, in last May and he had some free time. So he, my son Tim did the editing for me. So, uh, I'm gathering as much information as I can. I film what you can. And a lot of some people will say, Oh, it's beautiful scenery. It's just great mm-hmm. looking, all the colors. And, and I'll say, Yeah. That's because I, I'm not seeing any game, you know. <laughs> Those are beautiful days, but that, they're not the best hunting days, you know. The hunting days is when it's rainy or drizzly and, you know, you're chasing something and you don't have the camera out, you know, type of thing. But, uh, you know, you have to tr- pretty much try to film whatever you think of, take the time, you know. It's, I call it smelling the roses sort of thing, slow <laughs> down. And the film, the camera lets, allows me to do that. Now, once I get all that footage back, what are you going to do with it then? That's what's harder to tell the story. But for, for him, for my son, he's feeling the same as my brother felt way back when we did Primal Dreams. He was, you know, just overwhelmed. Where do you start? Where's the storyline? What are you going to do? You know, he's used to working off a script. Well, well, so be it. I have a script. I wrote articles for each one of those hunts. So I hand him the article that I wrote for the hunt. Well, there's your script. Read the script. Read, read the article. How I've written. There's 2,000 words right there find visual content that you can splice into into those articles and that's there's your storyline if i don't have it then then you don't use that part but try to you know follow these scripts of those hunts and that that's what happened with the with the chasing solitudes film but uh yeah spending the time and and then it'll come out and and i'll be you know i'll be sort of 
you know, waiting with bated breath. Well, what are, what are people going to think? You know, mm-hmm. are they going to like this or not? You know, and I'm thinking, oh, look at these scenes. Because I'm always, I get teary-eyed when I watch it sometimes. I know the experience that I had during, and the experience that it took to take, and the effort that it took to get that one scene. You know, it's only five seconds, but it's one five seconds of what? And, and I think well, people are going to love this grandeur and all this. And I'll get an email from somebody and they'll say, boy, I really like the, that mess kit. That really brought back memories of my, my dad when he had an old army mess kit. And I'll go, what? You're talking about the little mess kit? Or I'll write my book. I'll write a 330-page <laughs> book, you know, and I'll, I'll think people are going to, uh, you know, really dig into these, you know, huge critters I've chased over the years and the close encounters I've had. And they'll say, Boy, when I was a kid, I used to hunt with raccoons too. You're talking about the raccoons you connected to when I was <laughs> coon hunting when I was a kid? That's what you connected to? Yeah. So my point is that what we talked about earlier is like hunting is so broad, it's so diverse, and it means so much to so many people that I found out that the more the little things I can put in there, but hopefully that they, they flow long enough, which I've learned from my brother, don't dwell on it too much. But, you know, show the little pieces and that people will, will connect to it. Like, like you, like you guys just did with the electric fence and you mm-hmm. did with, uh, you know, hey, you know, you passed up. Why isn't he shooting? Why, what happened to him? Did he miss? What happened? Well, you, you see the arrow kind of go back into the quiver, you know, so he let that one go. And what was it? Was it not wide enough? Was it not legal? Was he just waiting for a bigger one? You know, so that's where you put yourself into, to my, into my uh, position and say, yeah, it could be all those things that I want the viewer to experience it, you know, from their own, you know, experiences and feel, feel something, you know, fill in the blanks, so to speak. I don't want to, I don't want to fill in all the blanks. And so that's how the, both those films have done. And now, now it's, uh, chasing solitudes is hopefully you guys will use that in the same, uh, same, uh, sentences as you recommend those other two films. You recommend this one for an, uh, uh, all audience film where any, anybody, a non hunter as well as a hunter can get something out of this film. And actually that had been the case. I mean, I launched this film uh, a month ago, June, June 1st and, uh, at a, at a movie theater, a local theater. The first viewing of this film was in a, uh, you know, a 200 seat movie theater. And it was just a, a great experience, you know, surround, you know, the, with the, with the sound and everything and popcorn and just all the quietness and just a giant screen. And, and here's, here's a guy, you know, calling moose, you know, it's just what an, what an experience we had that night. And especially for me and, you know, my sons and, and, uh, and my sister and, and my other son who has played some of the music that's in the film. But, uh, uh, you know, hopefully it'll, you know, reach uh, more people i would i would definitely say it's it's right up there with the with the other videos we were talking about mike i mean it's it it, it's and i don't want to give too much away but Mm -hmm. you know from my perspective watching the video and and it'll be a video that i watch many times there's there are so many little things and and this is what i found the first time i watched it there were so many little there were so many little things that you captured that made me start thinking about my own experiences that i'd have to stop and go wait i just missed five minutes of this video because i was you know it 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 really carries you to another place someplace else yeah it's really amazing yeah right so i guess i guess uh my son and i have uh, connected or, or fulfilled one of the goals anyway of, of, of the film you know some people think that hunters you know we are out there killing it and you know we shoot everything we see and all this and here this guy's passing up moose you know if you read my book this guy's passing up 
17 bull moose or whatever what is he crazy but no don't don't give too much away i'm still reading i'm still reading the book (laughs) okay (laughs) but uh anyway to the point of no we're not all we're not all like what the what gets projected and the, the negative stuff gets projected much more easier than anything positive so that's well, yeah, I, my my goal with this is to reach as many people as I can, and I know it's you know outdated format, and hopefully I'll get it. I, I got it on a download for the younger younger guys now. I'll, I'll soon have that out and be able to reach the guys that don't have you know DVD players. And I actually have the film in Blu-ray, so because it was filmed in high definition, and and so I want to keep uh, I want to maintain how it was when I when I'm doing the editing, when I'm looking at it on my on my television want people to see what I'm seeing you know I don't want to lose any any uh, any resolution or quality so I offered in, in in a blu-ray if you have a blu-ray player on a widescreen you'll be I think you'll be happy with with the quality that that uh, that that was done with the editing and stuff well Mike I, I think you knocked it out of the park I think you did a, a fantastic job I think you know what you've what you've presented in this is in this DVD just it it, it it establishes you as an ambassador to hunting. Forget the weapon. Forget you know how you're pursuing these animals. I mean, you're just an ambassador. You're an ambassador to hunting. You're an ambassador bow hunting. I mean, I think you just did a fantastic job. Thank you. Some of that uh, thought is, is is what I talk to other folks about. Well, that's just my bow. You know, that's my weapon. That's my bow. I don't I don't think it's a, like a recurve or. or a, or necessary compound or whatever. That's 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 just it. That's what I use. So I, I only look at it that way. So I try not to judge other folks on what they use and whatever, because you know they're looking at their bow and their weapon in the same way I do. You know, so we have enough but, categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enough categories. I just want to. I like to get close. You know, because because like we did. I just told you. You know, just little snippets of some of these stories. It's, you can't go into the fine details of all these great stories, but uh, I don't want to leave any of these stories in the field because we project onto the non-hunters about we're out there for the experience and the journey and and uh, you know and the, and the storytelling and the camaraderie. But if you if you're taking your game at much greater distances using technology, then you left a little bit of that story in the in the field, and I don't want to do that. But you know I don't want to cheat myself, but what other people do is that's up to them that's just that's my philosophy is how it's been over the years so i've had a lot of great experiences and i've had a lot of uh great heartbreaking experiences as well like most people <laughs> as sure. far as you know screw it up you know so that's why we keep calling and keep you know trying you know to get that perfect scenario and uh and as I write an article and, you know, try to tell people, oh, this is how, what it takes to kill a moose or a white-tailed deer. For, let's just go to white-tailed deer. Oh, you do this, you do that, you do the calling, the wind, and everything comes together. So I'll write this article or think about, tell people how it's going to be. And uh, by gosh, if it didn't uh, all come together almost exactly like I said <laughs> on one of the moose in the, in, the, in the video in my last experience, I was like, holy cow, it, it all did work. It all did go into play. And then when that happens, you just realize that, you know, how blessed you are and how, you know, it just you know, can't get any more perfect, you know. And so um, that's that's what you look for. And, you know, some somewhat spiritualness, some people don't. They aren't religious or don't feel that, but uh, but you'll get that in this film a little bit. And uh, if you look for, there's a, you know a cross in the woods somewhere. You know you'll be feeling like you think you're alone, but then all of a sudden I'll see a cross and I got to get it on film. And I'm like you know, uh, uh, we all have crosses to bear, and and also you know it seems like God's always you know with us type of thing. And so 
Some folks shy away from it. You know, I just put out there, hey, this is who I am. This is how I hunt. This is what I believe. That's that's all. Take it or leave it type of thing. Well, I would definitely say you've accomplished that. Um, and, Mike, I, I think we've probably kept you tied up long enough. Nick, you, you have anything else you want to? No, I mean, it, it's been an honor, Mike. I mean, yeah, we could wrap with you forever, but I think we, yeah. we've accomplished enough well, for an episode. we can do it again sometime. Oh, I'd, we'd like we that. Can, we can We'll I'll, uh, give me a call back when I come back from Iowa. We'll see what happens out there, or Illinois, or whatever <laughs> the whitetails. Because <laughs> uh, that's what. Back to where one one quick thing about the Winsels. I mean, they're whitetail guys, and and we're whitetail guys, and so that we're connected through the deer. And uh, another another one thought people ask me because I'll tell them it's about the journey and the story and the stuff and and the romance of the hunt. And then this, a guy will stop me, you know, and say, "What do you mean the romance of the hunt? You know, what are you talking about the romance?" And I'll, and I'll have to think, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll come up with this scenario of, you know, two lovers facing the night apart. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not with each other, but they look up into the sky. One's in South Dakota, the other might be in Wisconsin. And, but they look up and see the moon, and they can both be connected to that same moon at that given time. You know, the moon hasn't changed, you know, so they're, they're connected to it. And that's how I feel about the moose. You know, I'm connected to that moose. To, uh, connected to my ancestors through that moose. The moose hasn't changed in a thousand years, and you're creeping up on that animal, and you're you're there with your ancestors or your you know his ancient man, and you, and they're using the same muscles you are to draw the bow, and they're feeling the same stress on their backs as as they're laden with the meat, you know. And so that's what I think about, and how one of the reasons why hunting and kind of doing it on my own, all that type of thing, and and so it's it's the romance of the hunt, and it's hard to describe. Hopefully, I, you can get that from the film or the video, the, the the visualness that I've tried to pro- project in that film. But uh, anyway, leave you with uh, with that thought. Well, I I definitely I definitely think they can. And for everyone listening, again, the video is called "Chasing Solitude." If you're uh, by any chance going to Etar, Mike will be there, and you can you can pick up a copy there. Or you can order the DVD directly off the website, uh, along with Mike's book, One with the Wilderness, which I am currently reading. Uh, and now I've really got to get back to it after some of the things you, you said on this show. <laughs> yeah. um, the website is Herd Bull Productions, and that's uh, www.herdbullproductions.com. Mike, I can't thank you enough, man. It's been an absolute blast. I've really enjoyed enjoyed talking to you for the last hour hour and a half yeah same here thank you guys you're you're uh what you guys do is uh is uh uh, very uh important as well you know the reaching the young folks through these podcasts is is the new media that they're that they're in and so i like to connect with the young and the young folks and so this is a great way to do it thank you guys so much there's there's a lot of older folks getting into them as well too so uh, but uh we definitely do appreciate it and we will be back in touch with you this fall to see how your how your fall season <laughs> right. went we'll get another one of these lined up all right great thanks guys take care thanks mike, mike. thank you thanks. see you Nick. see you too and thank you to all of our listeners we sure hope you enjoyed the show please remember to check out the sponsor of this episode java man archery And if you contact Greg about a new bow, be sure to let him know that you listen to the traditional outdoors podcast. So long, everyone. Mm